All right. Good morning, Life Point. How are y'all? Wonderful. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to start there. And just to let you guys know, what we'll do today, we're going to start at 1 Peter. We're going to weave through a number of key passages in the Bible today because I want us to see this atomic truth that's just, it's, it's there, but sometimes we don't call enough attention to it, and we're going to try to weave through that. So just know we'll flip around. We've uh, printed uh, the verses we're going to be looking at in your bulletins that you should have received. They'll also be on the screens for you, but I'd love for you to begin at least opening your Bible or your phone app uh, and checking out First Peter 4, because that's going to be our root text today. And just to set us up so you know where we've been, um, we are looking at suffering, and have been for the last four weeks, um, and we've been using this analogy, or I've been using this analogy, uh, to help us understand suffering, thinking of suffering metaphorically as a storm that's coming through our life that we're experiencing. And in week one, what Pastor George did is he helped us to understand the storm uh, really on a ground level, that when the storm is blowing through, you've got to be rooted, you've got to link yourself to, to the deep well of truth of God's Word, and that's the only way you're going to be able to get through the storm. That was in week one. In week two, we flew up, if you remember, and we looked at uh, suffering from the Doppler uh, satellite view, looked down upon it. We learned some things about the storm, primarily that suffering is something that happens to everybody because of the fall. So as believers, we shouldn't be surprised at suffering. Instead, we should lean into what God wants to do. That was week two. Week three, we sliced suffering in half, dissected it, went to the control room, and we watched how suffering progresses in Romans 5. Uh, God always permits suffering to begin, and then that moves to an opportunity for endurance. When we practice endurance, that produces character, and character is confident in the hope we have in Jesus Christ. And Jesus, our hope, does not put us to shame. In fact, he redeems our shame uh, and, and brings us into a new place. That was week three. Well, this week... I want us to look at suffering at the atomic level. I want us to get uh, an electron microscope and just pare down, ratchet all the way down until we can see the most basic part of suffering and answer a big question as to why God permits us to go through suffering and what it's doing at just a core level. And before we jump in on that, I want to invite you to pray with me. And so if you'll do that, that'd be great. Jesus, I thank you that you don't just let us get sideswiped by suffering, that it never blindsides us in your providence, but know that you're actually sovereign over the suffering process, and you meet with us in the midst of suffering, and you help us to get through suffering for your glory and for our good. And as we look today at this potentially controversial idea uh, of your sovereignty over suffering, I pray that you would uh, produce character in us and increase our hope in you again for your glory, and for the good of the people who gather here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. 1 Peter 4.19, uh, and as you know, I normally read from the English Standard Version, uh, but like many of you, when I was first memorizing Scripture, I remember memorizing this verse in the New International Version. So just so you know, I'm going to start in the New International Version here, and then I'll flip over to the ESV for the remainder. Uh, but it's how I memorize this verse. It's also, I think, just in looking at all the verses, it's the best 
most helpful rendering of this passage. So I want to encourage you to think about memorizing 1 Peter 4, 19 this week, uh, and I would just encourage it in the NIV because it's going to set us up. So here's what Peter writes. Remember, he's just written this letter to these people about suffering. He's in the back end of that, so he's now turning to make application. It's very practical here. And here's what Peter writes. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Let me read that again. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Life point today, we're going to look at two things, two ideas. We're, we're going to look at kind of the first half of that, which is what does it mean to suffer under God's will? And then the very end, just very quickly, I'm going to make that practical application, which is uh, what does it look like to continue doing good? Because what Peter wants us to understand is that as believers, if we can assess that we are in a season where we are suffering and our suffering is happening according to God's will, that that suffering process should not produce us in us any kind of angst or worry. It doesn't, it's not a justification for us to act out and to be horrible people. It's not a justification for us to walk away from Jesus and just pout around. No, what, when we suffer according to God's will, when we come to understand that, it's motivation for us to continue doing what we know is right. If we know we should be having a devotional time every day, when we go through suffering, it reinforces that we continue having a devotional time. If we know we're supposed to gather with other believers on Sundays and celebrate hope in Jesus, then it reinforces, suffering reinforces, becomes a motivating factor for that. If we know that we're supposed to read our Bibles and we're supposed to pray and we're supposed to share our faith with others, suffering's not an opportunity to get away from that. On the contrary, suffering is this beautiful opportunity to double down on all those good things we know we're supposed to do. And that's what Peter wants us to understand. But before we jump into that, we have to ask a pretty principal question here. And that's the question that's in your outline. It says this, what does it mean to suffer according to God's will? In other words, is there a different kind of suffering? Is there an ordinary kind of suffering and then suffering according to God's will? Can you suffer outside of God's will? Like, how do I think about this? And practically as a believer, how can I assess when the storm is coming, if I'm in the midst of the storm, how can I assess that I, this is suffering according to God's will as opposed to something else? And so I want to look at that today. And the first truth point I want you to uh, fill in is this. What is suffering according to God's will? Number one, it's not suffering because of our foolish decisions. It's not suffering because of our foolish decisions. So if you have a Christian uh, sticker on the back of your car, maybe the Christian fish, or you have our LifePoint logo, it says LifePoint Church, or, you know, just you, you got the Jesus is my homeboy all across the back of your windshield, you know, however you roll, right? And you're in traffic going down the DNT to go to your commute in the morning, and you decide to cut somebody off on the road and slam on your brakes and honk your horn at them and yell at them and shake your fist and, you know, go biblical on them with all of that stuff, Right? And if the person you cut off decides to come around you and develop road rage and crash into you and you have to pull over on the side of the road and the police are coming and you guys get out and you're having it out with each other and the police are having to separate you two and you sit down and you look at the back of your bumper and the Christian fish emblem is indented, it's not okay for you to go, oh, this was persecution, right? That person clearly drove into me because I'm a believer and they want to persecute me. No, that's you being foolish on the road, right? This isn't, don't blame that on God, right? This isn't God's fault. This is your fault, right? That's suffering because of your foolish uh, decisions. 
And here's what I want you to understand about that. That's not the kind of suffering Peter is talking about, but just know this. If you're someone who is suffering because the, suffering the consequences because of your foolish decisions, listen, God's not necessarily mad at you. He is happy to walk with you in the midst of that, but keep in mind, God is a good, good father, right? And as good parents, it's really okay to let your kids um, feel the weight of their own consequences. But what you do is you don't protect them from those consequences. You walk alongside of them in the midst of that to help them understand not to do that again, right? If a kid, there's a stove, and the kid walks up and is about to touch the hot stove, and parent goes, no, don't do that. And kid just brazenly is like, oh, I'll show you. Ow, right? Okay. The parent says, oh, and they, they, they love the kid. They pick the kid up, and they, they squeeze the kid, and they, they medicate the hands, and they make sure everything's okay. And then they tell them, don't do that again. Why? Because it hurts your hand. But I'm going to love you. I'm going to hug you and hold you until everything's all better. That's what God does to us. Sometimes God allows us to make foolish decisions and to experience the consequences of our decisions, and he decides to love us in the midst of that. That is one particular type of suffering. That's not the suffering we're talking about here, okay? That's not suffering under God's will. What is it? Well, number two, it's suffering as a result of God's transforming love. It's suffering as a result of God's transforming love. And when Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians, um, in the second chapter, he's talked about Jesus, and he makes this, this statement here, and he's, he's commanding us as believers. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And if you want to underline a word, a circle word, there's that word work there. And the Greek term for that is energio, energio. It's where we get the term energy. And the idea you can get there is it's like the Energizer bunny, right? You put the batteries in it and it just starts going, right? It's, it's energizing you for some kind of transforming work. And maybe just to kind of spell that out, spell that out a little more, if you guys have ever seen that um, space documentary called Star Wars, right? It's a, it's a future documentary about what's going to happen in the space race, right? So there's a scene, there's a couple of different scenes in Star Wars where the Millennium Falcon is, is flying along, and then it kind of sputters. They need to go into warp speed, but something's broken, and Han Solo's like, oh, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do, and Chewbacca goes back and fixes something, and then he'll put in like a battery that's been misplaced, right, like this, because he's been like, he's like, oh, I don't know, and so he puts in the battery, and it goes, and it takes off, and the Millennium Falcon flies off, and it just moves, right? There's that whole scene. That's the idea idea in this word here, right? God, as you believe in Jesus and he comes into your life, he, his love energizes you and it begins to transform you and it, it gives you this sense of momentum and you take off. That's what God's doing. G uh, suffering as a result of God's transforming love. I want you to understand, Life Point, that God's love is transforming. And I want to just spell this out because I think this might be a little bit controversial for some of us here today to understand, but it's truth, and I want you to be aware of it because I don't want you to be misinformed, okay? And so to just, I want to unpack this a little bit more, and we're going to do so philosophically in this kind of logical syllogism of just breaking apart truth, okay? And these four statements here you might want to fill in on your, on your bulletin. The first statement is this. There is no growth without change, there is no growth in life across the board without change. Okay, any of you guys have kids or you remember when you were kids, right? You're four feet tall and then you go to be five feet tall. Four feet to five feet is different, okay? 
And the way we mark that different is to describe it as change, and the particular type of change is called growth. I was four feet, I'm now five feet, right? So there's no growth without change. They're associated. Number two, all change is painful. If you have kids who are growing, uh, they had these things that became a 1980s uh, television show called Growing Pains, right? The kids have these growing pains, right? And they go from four to five feet. Your, your kids will tell you, like, oh, my legs hurt, my joints hurt. And they say this all the time, right? And you remember when you were going through growing pains, your legs were always hurting. There's no growth, uh, or no growth without change, and all change is painful by definition. Now, it's not crazy painful. It's not the most painful thing you've ever experienced. It might just be discomfort, but there's pain there. So once you understand that life point, no growth without change, change is painful. And so the next statement is this, God's love, as we've established, is a change agent. It's what Philippians 2 is telling us. It energizes us. It transforms us. And so if God's love is a change agent, we have to come to this conclusion. God's love is a wonderfully painful kind of love. God's love is a wonderfully painful kind of love because it changes us. It changes us from the inside out. The whole doctrine of sanctification is this. You ask Jesus to come into your heart. He, he converts you. He puts a new nature in you. He puts the love of God in you, and that love begins to change you. It, it fires on like the Millennium Falcon going into to hyperspeed, right? And, and, and it begins to transform you from the inside out. But guess what? That, that process of transformation, it, like all other processes of transformation, is painful. And that's why you guys may have some friends who come to believe in Jesus at an early age, and you're walking with them, and you're going to the same Bible studies, you're going to all the same things, right? And then at some point, they walk away from the faith, right? And you're asking yourself, how, how, how could they possibly walk away from Jesus? And they'll tell you, it was just too hard. It was just too hard to be a Christian. Well, what do they mean? They mean God's love is starting to change them, and that change is painful, and they don't want to deal with the pain. That's what people who walk away, that's what they do. They, they recognize at some point this is a painful thing. And, and I tell you that because I think at, you guys may have heard this, maybe you've communicated this, and this isn't to get on anybody, but well-meaning pastors, well-meaning uh, ministers, well-meaning Christians have told people this kind of car salesman, no offense to car salesman, right? But it's kind of this, this car salesman pitch, which is, hey, if you believe in Jesus, then it's going to be like all of your wildest dreams are going to come true. It's going to be puppy dogs and unicorns and snow no cones all day long. And so people believe in Jesus and they're like, yeah, I want the joy. I want the happiness. And then God puts his love inside of them. He begins to transform them. And they're like, no, I don't want that because that's painful. I don't want to change. I want to be a Christian, but I want to keep doing everything I've always done all my life with no change. And, and that's not part of the gospel. The gospel is God's going to come inside of you and he's going to change you from the beginning and it's going to be painful. But I promise you by the very end, you're going to have this renewed sense of hope and transformation as your character is made into the character of Christ. Let me, let me see if I can give you guys a practical parallel story here. Um, I, I just want you to take a look at the picture on the screen here of me at age 19. <laughs> right? So we got, the, we got the little puka shell necklace thing going on and the long hair and the, you know, beard. We got Larry Legend, the greatest basketball player of all time right there, which by the way, I still have that poster. It's in my office here. And it's in my office here because when we got married, my wife was like, out of the house, into the office, right? I was like, couldn't we make it a focal point of our accent wall? She was like, no. Anyway, so, but 
So this is me at 19. Let me just tell you about Doug Hankins at 19. And I, I, let me just also admit this because everyone I talked to after the first service, I showed them this, they were like, you smoke pot, right? Everyone, that was their first thought. I'll let you know, I wasn't smoking pot. Like, I, I just didn't do drugs. Now, I came to find out everyone I hung out with did. I just thought that was their personality and had no clue that was going on. But I just thought we were all cool and just kind of hanging out. Anyway, so this is 19-year-old Doug. And what you can't smell in that photo is um, I didn't so much shower regularly uh, at this. I was a freshman at college, and um, my whole kind of routine was like I wake up, I'd have a quiet time, I'd go eat breakfast, I'd go for like a run, a workout, I'd go to class. If I didn't sweat too much, I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't really change my clothes. I just, you know, I, it was just a 19-year-old dude, right? And uh, I, I'd made it a goal my freshman year that I wasn't going to date anybody uh, because I wanted to learn. I, I didn't really know how Christians were supposed to approach marriage, so I was trying to learn that. So I kind of went on this fast from dating kind of thing. And um, so not showering and not shaving and not washing my clothing was actually beneficial to that because it just created like this force field of stench around me, and girls just were away. So I was, I was completely fine and in my little cocoon area. It was great. My, my roommates, they just put up with it, right? So it was just really great. But then something miraculous took place. My sophomore year, I met this girl named Natalie, right, who would later become my wife. And man, I fell in love with her. Well, guess what? Soon after I fell in love with her, I decided to shave, and I decided to cut my hair, and I decided to do my laundry. In fact, Natalie would even say things like, hey, if you want to go on a date with me, um, we're going to need to talk about the laundry situation, right? Because I don't want you showing up smelly for this date. And man, I mean, I, there's this one after, uh, one after another, Natalie would say, hey, if you really want to keep dating me, this is going to have to, you know, be adjusted here. We're going to have to talk about showering, right? You need to shower. Do you have deodorant? No. Let's go to the store. Let me show you what men's deodorant looks like, right? You're going to need to brush the teeth, and you're going to need to, right? What kind of soap do you use? Hand soap doesn't count. We're going to have to talk about actual bar soap, right? These are the conversations she had to have with me, right? And now, I mean, look today. Look at this, right? Huh? I mean, clearly this has been a work of transformation, by the love of Natalie, it's produced all of this, right? Well, yeah, so we got married, right? And I remember one of our first meals we had together, like the plate came down and there was no chocolate on it. It was like this, you know, deck of card sized meat protein thing. And like there was vegetables, which I didn't know what those were. And then there was like, you know, some other healthy quinoa type stuff. And I, I couldn't spell quinoa. I was like, what is this? And she said, this is healthy food. This is how meals should be. And I was like, what? I was like, I, I don't want to eat vegetables. She was like, do you want to be married to me? And I was like, yes, I do. And she was like, then you're going to eat vegetables. And I said, yes, ma'am. <laughs> right? And so I tried vegetables for the first time. I'm, nine, I'm uh, 22 years old. I'm eating vegetables. She made me eat broccoli. I was like, oh, broccoli, right? And she would, I mean, like a three-year-old, she'd be introducing all these new foods, okay? Like, you know, feeding me, like, do you like the broccoli? It's okay. Well, I want you to eat it seven times and see if you can develop a habit for it, right? This is what happened our first year of marriage, all these things, right? And, and so, again, at the very end, why did I do all of this? Because Natalie loved me, and she wanted better for me, and her love was a change agent in my life to take me from the stoner kid to what you see here today, right? 
And any of you who are married, you understand this. Your spousal love is meant to change one another. You're like iron sharpening iron. And that love is a, it's a painful process, but it produces change. And you guys know that anybody, any of your friends who've gotten divorces, what happened in that situation is that the love was producing change and it was a painful process. And at some point, one of the spouses said, I'm out. I don't want to take that pain anymore. Why? Because love, by definition, it's a, it's a change agent. It's a wonderfully painful thing. And this is true because God is the one who created love. And he intended love to be this transforming force in the universe. And God's love, I should say, it's not like human love. It is a supernaturally transforming, painful, wonderful agent of change. And so life point, this, all of this, when we answer this question, what does it mean to suffer according to God's will? It means that we are suffering as a result of God's transforming love, and there's this practical takeaway right here, and it's this. When it comes to our lives, we're going to be transformed by God's love when the pain of change is less than the pain of remaining the same. So you're going to be transformed by God's love when the pain of change is less than the pain of remaining the same. Or to flip that, when the pain of remaining the same is greater than the pain you experience from that love, you'll change. And so for me, the pain of being a smelly 19-year-old boy that no one wanted to be around was greater than spending time with my nice, sweet, beautiful, soft, amazing, beautiful wife. Did I say beautiful? She's beautiful, right? So, so I, I was like, hey, I'm willing to give all of that up. I'm willing to give that bachelor lifestyle up because being with you is better. It's less painful. I know that doesn't sound loving, right? This is just a recommendation, husbands, on Valentine's Day. What I don't want you to do is write a card, like a handmade card, and say, being with you is less painful than being a bachelor, right? <laughs> that is true. It's true. So wives, if you receive this, don't hate, right? Okay, don't hate. They're, it's true. But we might want to think about some more flowery language. But again, when it comes to God, just to bring it back, when it comes to God, God's love is a powerful, transforming, changing agent. It's going to be painful, but it's going to produce hope in Jesus. And so the pain of cooperating with God is going to be less than the pain of staying where you are. And I know it's painful, but the good thing is God's sovereign over that process. And like a loving father, he will walk with you through that pain into that place of character where hope is alive. Number two. Number three. Actually, before we get to number three, I want to I just prove this point a little bit in Scripture, just so you guys see something. So I'll read quickly through a couple of passages. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is talking about uh, kind of how God operates it with humanity. He's quoting the Old Testament, so there's something we're picking up on in this verse. But in verse 26 of chapter 12, he writes, At that time his voice shook the earth in the Old Testament, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, earthly created things, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. If you're an underliner, I want, you to under, I want to encourage you to underline that last part, the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So the principle the author of Hebrews is talking about is this. Sometimes, life point, because God loves you in his sovereignty, not because you've done anything, sometimes he will shake you. He will shake your world. He'll shake your world so that what cannot be shaken, Jesus, will remain so that you'll cling to the only thing that cannot be shaken. Sometimes God will permit your world to be shaken so that what cannot be shaken, Jesus, will remain. There's this, there's this movie called Moonstruck. 
uh, stars Cher and Nicolas Cage. It's like in the 1980s, maybe 1988. You guys can look at IMDb and double-check me on that. But there's this famous scene, if you want to look it up, and I'll post it to social media later. But um, uh, Nicolas Cage and Cher are having this conversation. Nicolas Cage tells Cher, I love you, right? And she's like, there's no way you can love me. I can't be with you, whatever. And he's like, but I love you, I do. And she looks at him, and she slaps him. And he's like stunned. And so she slaps him again, and she just goes, snap out of it, right? And then like walks off. This really classic scene from that film. Well, this is what God does sometimes because he loves us. He'll shake us and say, hey, snap out of it. You guys, I'm sure have kids or friends or whatever, and they're walking down the wrong path. And you're like, whoa, 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 buddy. No, 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 you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. And you just want to walk up to them and shake them and be like, snap out of it. Well, that's what God does out of love for us. Sometimes we're going down the wrong path and we know it, and God will shake our world to get our attention. Because he knows as believers, we're trained to cling to Jesus when our world gets shaken. We're, we're trained to pray to him and to sing praises to him. And so again, I just want you to understand, God is not above shaking your world to get your attention, to bring you back to the one thing that will give you hope in this world, and that's Jesus, right? Why? Because his, his goal is transformation for us. He doesn't want us to get off on the wrong path. And there's that. I want to show you a second a passage here, and this is really someone who is actually suffering as a result of their own foolish decisions, but we kind of get the sense that God is shaking them as a way to help them understand this value that the pain of change has to be less than the pain of remaining the same, and it's the prodigal son. And as Luke tells us, I just want you to notice kind of the, the, the pain transformation, the love transformation that's happening in the story. Uh, Luke is writing about what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, after he had spent everything, the prodigal son did, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So catch that story. The prodigal son is poor. He's spent all his money. He's wasted on his money being foolish, Okay, and he's now suffering the consequences of that foolishness, right? And he's working for, as a hired hand, and he's, he's longing for the food that the pigs are eating in the slop. And notice what happens in verse 17, the very next verse. In fact, you might want to underline this. When he came to his senses. Six of the most important words in the New Testament. When he came to his senses, what happened? He goes, oh, wait, wait, something's not right here. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. What happened there? He just saw that the pain of remaining the same in the pigsty was way worse than the pain of changing and going back to see his father. The pain of staying in the pigsty worse than the pain of humbling himself and going back to see his father. That's the transforming power of God's love, right? Jesus is, is telling the story to illustrate that. For, for in this story, in this context right here, you have someone who is potentially not a believer 
who is now for the first time understanding the truth of the gospel that, hey, I can't keep walking in my own foolish decisions and consequences. Instead, I need to turn and yield myself to Christ and believe in him that I can, I can be uh, in a relationship with a father. That's what he wants. That's that situation. For others of us, right, when we're in these, uh, we're in these uh, tr- transforming moments of God's season of suffering, it, it, he'll shake our world so that we'll go, oh, okay, I got God, I got your attention, okay, yeah, and we'll cling to Jesus so that he, Jesus, will be the one who produces hope in us, right? God's love, it's a transforming love. That's what I want you guys to get, and it's gonna be painful, but that's okay because God's sovereign over the process of pain here. That's not ordinary suffering that everybody else goes through. This is the suffering under God's care. So first two uh, principles I want us to understand again. Number one, it's not suffering because of our foolish decisions. Number two, uh, it's suffering as a result of God's transforming love. Number three, it's suffering that results in worship to Jesus. It's suffering that results in worship to Jesus. To kind of illustrate this, I want us to look at Job. If you guys haven't looked at the the passage of Job here, uh, Job is a man who is righteous before God. He's got a lot of property. He's got a lot of family. In the first chapter, God permits his family and his property to to be taken away from him just in an instant. It goes away. And you would think that Job, when all of his family except for his wife are killed and all of his property and all of his possessions are taken away, you would think you'd, you'd maybe cut Job some slack, right? Like, okay, it's okay, Job, if you just want to kind of like curse God for a little bit and then just kind of get over it, right? And here's what, uh, Job, what happens to Job in verse 20 of chapter 1. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with the wrong. What happened there? God permitted Job's world just to be shaken. And what do you see happens in Job? He clings to God. He doesn't go off and complain. He doesn't use the situation as justification for just poo-pooing everything. No, he clings closer to God. Why? Because he understands that the thing that's changing him and transforming him, it's the thing to cling on to. Jesus is the thing to cling on to. Without Jesus, you have no hope. So what good does it do to go around and be hopeless and be miserable? How about you do this? When I feel hopeless, I'm going to go cling to the one who can bring me hope, and that's Jesus. Suffering under God's will, life point, is suffering that results in worship to Jesus. And the fourth point is connected to that. It's suffering that motivates us to continue practicing good discipleship. It's suffering that motivates us to continue practicing good discipleship. And the correlating statement there is when you're pressed, your true character squeezes out. When you're pressed, your true character squeezes out. You guys ever seen a grape? If you ever picked a grape up and you look at it and it's got the, you know, it's got the skin on the outside, right? And it's kind of rough, but then you can kind of squeeze it and what's on the inside will come out onto the outside, right? That's what happens when you squeeze something. What's on the inside comes out. And so what I want us to understand today, this, when we're talking about suffering under God's will, it's suffering where God may want us to be pressed so that Jesus will come out. Because when believers are pressed, what comes out is not cuss words, right? Um, It's not someone just bad-mouthing everything. It's not someone complaining. When believers are pressed, 
Jesus comes out because Jesus is on our inside. And so sometimes, life one, I want you to understand, suffering is going to come upon you, and it's not your foolishness. It's not consequences. It's that for whatever reason, God has permitted you to go in a situation, a season of suffering, so he can press you so that he can show the world what happens when a Christian suffers, namely that Jesus gets magnified. Let me give you an example of that. I want you to look on the screen here. This is a picture of a lady in our church. This is Cammie Bannon. Cammie's the uh, uh, assistant to uh, uh, George. She's an administrative assistant, executive administrative assistant here. Cammie and Reed, her husband, have been going to LifePoint for a season. I mean, just good people. They've gone through a LifeBeat class. They're involved in a really kind of cool life group. Um, she loves, you'll see her around here serving uh, on, the, on the welcome team. She just does a number of things here in addition to her job. I mean, she's just a really cool Christian lady you know, from Lubbock, got the kind of Lubbock, West Texas kind of, you guys know that, just the golden voice factor, just real funny, real sassy, right? You'll see her around. She'll be like, hey there, right? Just got the, you know, this is, in my head, this is how Cammy talks all the time, right? She's this really cool, sweet, neat Christian lady. Well, in this photo here uh, was from about a year ago. Cammy was diagnosed with cancer, and what you don't see in the photos, she's got the Texas Rangers hat on because it's covering up her bald head as the hair had fallen out from the process of treatment. And in her hand, she's got this book. It's a red book. It's actually a Christian devotional text that she's reading as she's getting treatment. And she has a little frog thing right here. And that's not just some like weird thing that Cammie carries with. Well, it is kind of a weird thing that Cammie carries with her. But it's not, it's not an, an intentionally weird thing. For, for Cammie, frog is an acronym that means fully rely on God. And so when she would go to this chemo treatment, she would have the frog there with her to remind her, hey, in all of this, I'm fully relying on God. This was a season, if you knew Cammie, where she was being pressed, not because of her own foolish decisions. These aren't consequences. This isn't Cammie like, you know, saying, oh man, I'm going to keep doing this action because I know it'll result in cancer. Just for whatever reason, God permitted her to walk through a season of cancer. And it was really interesting for those of you who knew Cammie in the midst of that, that Cammie just had this amazing attitude that as she's getting more and more and more pressed, she's just fully relying on God and praising him and having a positive attitude and saying, you know what, if, if God decides for me to die in the midst of this, I'm going to go be with Jesus. But if God decides for me not to die in the midst of this, I'm going to praise him just the same. And that was just her attitude, just a wonderful attitude. Well, I, I tell you all that because in this photo or the photo that was just up here on the screen, Cammie is getting treatment, and you can imagine a cancer treatment center, what that's like working there. Maybe some of you are nurses or medical professionals, and you've chosen to work in the field of oncology. You know that that can be a pretty bleak experience at times, because tens of hundreds of people walk through the clinic every day, and they have cancer, and not all of them are believers, right? And so you have people who show up, and they're just shaken, but they have nothing to cling on to. And so they just they got bad attitudes or they're scared or they're angry and they act out and they're just kind of unstable and just, you know, just bad attitudes. And you can just imagine trying to be a nurse working in that situation where you're trying to stick needles in people and test things. You're like, oh man, hey, can I get your, can I get your arm? No, not right now. Okay, well, I'll come back in a little bit. Just take your time. And you're trying to minister to these people, be merciful towards them. But they're without hope, and so they're just these kind of difficult patients to work with, and it's understandable. It's just a heartbreaking situation. Just imagine being a medical personnel, someone, someone who goes in day in and day out and has to deal with these difficult people who are in an end-of-life situation, and just how taxing and weary that is on your shoulders, and you just, you're like, oh, this is so just 
uncomfortable, but I, I want to care for them. And it's just draining me. And then you show up, and Cammie's there with her frog and her devotional and her pink Texas Rangers cap. And you show up, and you're walking in. You're not sure who she is. You're like, hey, I need to do some treatments on you. Is that okay? And she's like, oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, just uh, where you want to stick me, right? Okay. You know, you want a vein here? You want a vein here? What's going on? Yeah. She's just happy. She's like, so what's going on in your world, right? Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. All right. So do you like that? Do you like what you do? Like the person's injecting, like, poison into Cammie's body to kill all the cells. And she's like, oh, wow, this is painful. But, you know, whatever. And she's just got this chipper attitude. And you can just imagine being a medical personnel. You're like, I'll be right back. And you go to the coffee room. You're like, there's the strangest thing that just happened. Like, I just poked this person with a needle and they told me, thank you. And I don't know what's going on here. There's something a little different, right? You can imagine that being just this breath of fresh air. And you can imagine the personnel at some point. I asked Cammie about this. I was like, you know, did you ever have that conversation? She was like, well, yeah, you know, like, I think the lady there was a believer, my nurse, and she could tell I was a believer, and we just kind of bonded. I got to encourage her in the midst of that, and you're like, okay, right? You're like, how amazing that must be. What's going on here? See, life point, this is a perfect example. Sometimes God wants to get the gospel out to people around you, And he's going to use suffering as his means. And he's going to put pressure on you. And he's going to press you. And you're going to be around other people. And what's going to come out is praise to Jesus. And people around you are going to go, what? Like, what came out of your mouth? Like, I've heard people saying God's name, but typically there's a cuss word that follows. You are saying it like, praise God. Like, what is happening in the situation? And you're able to just, in that moment, say, hey, listen, you know, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. I have hope in Jesus, and so I'm not rocked by this situation. And the gospel goes out, and people hear it. It impacts them. I, I don't know how many people have been saved because God has taken Christians through cancer. Because medical personnel see people under pressure, and they see Jesus come out, and they're like, Whatever that is that you have, I need because my world doesn't have any kind of sturdy hope like that. So tell me more about this Jesus. Life point. Maybe you're here today and you're walking through some suffering. And maybe you're walking through suffering because you've been making foolish decisions. I want to lovingly encourage you from God's word to say this. Stop making foolish decisions and lean into Jesus God's a good father, and he doesn't want you to not have fun, but he wants you to live rightly, and he wants you to move towards Jesus. So let him move you towards Jesus. Come to your senses, life point. Come to your senses if that's you. Maybe you're here today, and you're suffering under God's will, under his care. And I want to tell you, the same is true. Lean into Jesus. This isn't your fault. Maybe this is God. Maybe this is God wanting to press you so that Jesus comes out. So wherever you are in your suffering, let Jesus come out. Lean into him. He's your hope. God will take this, produce endurance, which leads to character, which will result in hope in Jesus. Remember, Romans 8 is still true that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. And if you're suffering in Christ, you're suffering according to God's purposes, and he wants to work it all together for your good and for his glory. And on that note, let's pray, and we'll respond. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you that you love us enough not only to give us good gifts, but also to take us through seasons of suffering that will produce Christ-like joy to come out of us and be a gospel proclamation to the people around us. And the Lord, sometimes you need to prove to the world 
the goodness of Christ by taking your saints through suffering. And so, Lord, for those of us who are here today and we're in the midst of suffering so that you can prove the goodness of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would let that transforming love have its way for your glory and for the good of the people and for the salvation of the people around them. And Lord, for those of us who are in suffering today because of our own consequences, God, help us to come to our senses. Lord, I'm one of the chief foolish decision makers. And so I'm not saying this out of judgment. I'm just praying for myself as well for the, my brothers and sisters who are here today who just may need to hear those words and that you may need to do some work with. And Lord, as we hear all of this and we get ready to respond, I pray that you'd receive it as praise to your name, Lord. As we put offering in a plate in a little bit, as we sing one more song, as people walk back to the connection room and get prayer and care and counseling, Lord, I pray that you would just do ministry here today in the lives of your people. Lord, thanks for LifePoint. Thanks for our family. Thanks for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks for the staff. Thanks for the buildings. Thanks for the air conditioning. Thanks for the coffee, which is like manna from heaven. Thanks for it all, Lord. As we leave here today after you do ministry business with us, as we leave, Lord, help us to meditate on this truth that you're a good father who loves us enough to give us good things and to take us through suffering for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Life point, our ushers are gonna go ahead and pass